Welcome to the Pinelander Podcast, the official podcast of Pineland, broadcasting to you from an undisclosed location deep inside Pineland, where we discuss faith, family, finances, firearms, freedom, food, and everything else in between with those who believe in living free and living out the values that made this country free. Welcome to the Pinelander Podcast. I'm your host, Paul LaFavor. I'm here with my ranger buddy, Mike Blackburn. And today is Friday, the 28th of October, 2022. And, uh, you know, I just have to keep saying that I'm enjoying the cool weather, uh, the changing of the leaves and all that. And uh, it's just, it's great to finally get out of the hot weather. So I'm hoping that everybody out there is enjoying it as well. Uh, Today we have back in the G-Base... Uh, by popular demand, uh, we have uh, Lieutenant Colonel retired Mitch Utterbach, uh, who is amongst President other for things. Duty. What's that? President for duty. President for duty. Yeah, welcome, sir. Welcome. Well, I think what happened was he found out security was lax at the G base, so he came to <laughs> tighten us up a little bit. Walked right in, as a matter of fact. Walked right in. Yeah, and uh, what I found out, and uh, is really what we're going to be able to talk about today, is how awesome 10th Group is amongst other things so for those other guys uh, from the other groups you know uh you know uh eat your heart out but uh we're really going to love on 10th group uh mitch was also part of that formation and what we want to talk about today amongst other things is uh, the formation of the 10th special forces group which as you know were the originals and uh and so mitch is um, somewhat of a historian Self, somewhat, self-proclaimed. But, <laughs> but well, uh, Mitch, well, it kind of ties yeah. into, don't we? I mean, last time we were here, we talked about the OSS and sort of Absolutely. the founding and the uh, genesis of Special Forces. So to me, this is sort yeah. of the, the natural part two, I guess. Thanks, Mike. Yeah. So, yeah, Mitch, uh, and before we introduce you, for guys, uh, if you like what you hear today, you're going to want to go back in the, uh, the annals of the podcast history and find that part one where Mitch is going to talk about the OSS. I'm sure he's going to talk about that a little bit today, but uh, hey, Mitch, without further ado, sir. Well, thanks, fellas. Glad to be back. Uh, you might want to change your challenging password. I walked right into the G-Base. <laughs> they, they halted me. I said flash. They said thunder. And uh, I walked right in. So uh, An old one. Yeah. It worked. Nice. It, al- it always works. Yeah. It always works. Well, it worked with the locals. I mean, yeah, yeah. So I am, I'm, uh, I'm here with you guys today at your invitation, and partially my uh, alerting y'all to the fact that I have just last month had the privilege of participating in the Special Forces Association National Convention in Colorado Springs that was commemorating the 70th anniversary of the creation of the Army Special Forces. Wow. They, they asked me to, this year, moderate a panel comprised of original members of the Special Forces, known as the Originals, and that's why 10th Group has that nickname. Happily agreed and spent uh, the whole week with four gentlemen uh, in their 90s and 91, Henry Bertrand, Vaughn Saponsi, Clyde Sincere, and Richard Simonian. And hope some of you listening may have heard those names. And 
You may be members of the SF Association and they may be in your chapters. These gentlemen were just like us in, when they were in their early 20s. Well, I would like to, that we're kind of complimenting ourselves by saying they were just like us. No, we, we have striven to be just like them. And as I got to know them, I realized 70 years ago, young men entering special forces had the same motivations, the same drive, the same undaunted mindset that we, that we try to impart into the guys nowadays. And that at some humble level, we can admit to ourselves, we, we all have a piece of that undaunted mindset in Pavide in um, Latin. And it's, uh, it also makes me think of, remember Soft 2020, when General Cleveland came out with Soft 2020? Yeah. One, of the, one of the things uh, that was used to describe Army Special Forces was we can wade into uncertainty and prevail. I believe we do that still, and talking to these great originals, I realize they, they did it as well. But you know, the, the original originals uh, were World War II veterans, like Aaron Bank and Colonels Bank, Volkman, and Fertig. Volkman and Fertig in the Philippines. They, as we know, achieved great things by believing that they could and that, that they would be successful. These three officers in 1951 were assigned to the Cywar Center at the Pentagon. And we, we, as we remember our special operations forefathers, we think, I mean, you've had me here before, we think of them parachuting from a hole in a, the belly of a B-24 with the British jump master saying, right, action stations, number one, go! <laughs> we think of them parachuting into occupied France and uh, linking up with their maquis and doing the things that we're still training our troops to do now, or in the case of the guys in the Philippines, deep behind Japanese lines, uh, attacking, harassing, and then fading back into the jungle. Something that we don't think about, though, who wants to, is the staff work, the yep. painful <laughs> staff work that they put in, in multiple meetings and TDY, TDY trips that they had to take to convince the Army, higher and higher echelons of the Army, that there was a need for a full-time force that would conduct unconventional warfare. And after World War II, as uh, we often do it at the end of great conflicts, we, we disband some of the units that accomplished the most with the least, like the OSS was disbanded yeah. in 45. But with the, with the fall of the Iron Curtain and the occupation of Eastern Europe by the Soviet Union, more and more thinkers began to realize that uh, maybe maybe Bank Volkman, Volkman and Fertig, under the command of General McClure at the Cywar Center, maybe that is the right idea. Maybe we need to more than just send CIA guys in with the air, thanks to the Air Force when the balloon goes up. Maybe we need to have guys trained and prepared long before that. And uh, Colonel Bank, 
he saw that need and they prepared briefings and they gave briefings and they went back to the drawing board mm. stayed many late nights i can imagine colonel bank getting home to catherine late and telling her what a rough day it was and hopefully that she had something healthy and whole wheat prepared he was a health nut i mean his whole life and uh that's why i live so long in yeah. great part yes and because he exercised so hard yeah. but the staff so, yeah. the staff work that they put in uh needs needs a note it's not sexy but it's yeah. it's the pain that they put in to get permission and get approved and once the ranger companies were deactivated the army had its 23 to 2500 slots that special forces was going to fill so that was i was going to ask you that um Mitch is uh, basically, it almost seems like you had Bank, Fertig, and Volkman in a room, and they said, okay, how'd you do it? Yes. I mean, that, is that basically it? I believe, yes. Colonel Bank's autobiography from OSS to Green Berets, it was written later in his life, 30 years after he retired. Um, and he, even he as an author knew that, I'll do my inner bank voice, you know, talking about the staff work isn't going to be that exciting. But Special Forces was formed from a great amount of staff work done at the Pentagon with, with us at the Psy War Center. Now, I would do that impression for Catherine and his, da and his daughter, so I'm not making fun of him. I'm honoring him by doing my best Aaron Bank, Aaron Bank accent. But yeah, they, their TTPs and their lessons learned, their tactics, techniques, and procedures and lessons learned were truly brought into the staff work and the pitches. And they applied their capabilities indirectly by winning over agents of influence that could then carry their message uh, higher ups in chains of command. And it was great to stu study how SF was formed and realize, wow, they basically won over people that were intimidated by the concept and we're going to have to brief it to others and co-opted them, brought them into the G base and uh, let them go out there and do great things. So as I, have I, as I've studied the formation of, of SF, I see uh, the indirect application of capabilities and the creation and deployment of force multipliers to get the word out and get approval. Hey, so just, yeah, I, don't, I, don't, I don't, I don't, I mean, you're, you know, you're kind of, you know, you kind of me here with, with, with the topic of the staff work because you're absolutely right. We don't ever think about that, but I'm, I'm sitting here wondering, uh, post-World War II, you, you must've had a great deal of material, okay, from the European theater and how they did business would be totally different than what they were doing over in the Philippines and in the Pacific. But when it when it came time to form special forces, they really, I, I mean, I, I imagine that they're sitting down and they're bringing, you know, going through all of that documentation and trying to bring it in and, and to form something that works everywhere rather than just focusing on one theater yeah. or one area. Rather than a Eurocentric. And yeah. the other thing that comes to mind is at least when I was in, um, you know, SF guys get made fun of by other branches, if you will, uh, the Navy and a lot of other places because they think we're 
uh, you know, we, we worry too much about planning. You know, we, we, we're, we're, uh, or someone else is doing the planning, yeah. maybe a naval special warfare. But I mean, we, in the army, we get kind of anal. I, I'll be, you know, when you're working with other branches, you kind of see that we have sort of an anal nature to yes, us indeed. as far as planning, planning, planning. Um, but that's sort of in our lineage, I guess. Yes, indeed. It is, uh, it, it certainly, you can't put that in a cool video. You can't put planning and staff work in a, in a recruitment video. Hell, you can't even put uh, cultural, cultural competency and cultural awareness in a recruiting video. Recruiting videos, I guess young guys are, they want to see uh, tracer fire, yeah. multicam, that, uh, that motorcycles, the, yeah. you know, yeah. the, cool, the, the helmets and the cool guy stuff. If you can get a guy doing a, you know, shooting a pistol and doing quick mag changes, yeah. you know, in full kit and a, a pro mask, that's going to get that's going to get him to sign up. But the 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 planning, our planning. I have a couple of examples of where. And you bring that. It's interesting you bring that up, Mike, because I I have been on a JSET with the. Um, South Korean, the Republic of Korean Special Forces, where we 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 did separate planning, and then we each pitched a um, the plan for our mission. And when my ODA presented our mission analysis and and our staff mission brief, the Korean SF team said they basically did a five W. We're going to do this. We're going to do this. We're doing this. And they their actual criticism of their American counterparts was, why are you doing the work of our brigade headquarters? You have done what the brigade staff does for us. They, hand, they, did the, they do that exact same thing, and then they hand it to us, and we execute. And this was in 2000, and I thought this is very illuminating to so, see. And, I, and I've, I've found that to be the case in a lot of the other soft branches, where there's... Um, a higher element that always takes care of things. And the action guy doesn't need to be bothered with that. But I point. think the nature of special forces is, is different in that respect where you can take that ODA and the staff, higher staff's not going with you. Um, that 12-man ODA has got to be able to do everything that that higher staff would typically do in other organizations. Yes, that's right. So I think that's probably um, a really big difference between at least the Green Berets and SEALs and Raiders and some of the other members of, of SOF. Uh, my, one of my old uh, units, a, a, a 519 in Los Alamitos, California, did a, some waterborne training in the Pacific Ocean with the SEALs from Coronado. And... Some of the NCOs, E7s from 19th Group, uh, came up with the plan for the entire day because they're going they're going out in their rigid hull and their inflatable boats, and they're going to do stuff. Uh, they they studied the tides and they had nautical charts and they were ready to do waterborne infiltration properly. This they they asked the seals, who were joining them, the seal platoon that was going to be working with them. Hey, what are you guys? What have you guys done for planning? You know, what have you done for um, just you know, five paragraph op order and 
where you got you got charts, you got thinking about the tides and the weather conditions, and and this NCO SFNCO told me he said, "Sir, this distilled this what they said next distilled their level of planning perfectly." And for you seals, you may have heard this before. The seal said, "We're just gonna wing it, brah." There you go. Yeah, we're not trying to make fun of seals, but they're yeah. For those of us that have been in the soft community, I mean, this is just the way it is, and it's okay. Yeah. 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 On the other hand, at, at uh, we we are just we are just organized different to do really different things. And that's that was probably like a twenty five year old kid who was a uh, wrestler in in high school. Yeah. However, I have served in NATO Special Operations Component Command in Kabul where all the hard jobs were filled by SEAL, SEAL officers, and they did great stuff. So uh, I want to give both sides, like the young SEAL saying, like, wing it, brah. And then the, you know, the J3 at NSOC A was uh, a SEAL, SEAL officer. Yeah, I mean, I think the big difference, I think, is just down at that um, E7, E6 yes. team level. Yep. That's kind of where you see... Um, a big disparity. Now, we certainly don't want to turn this yeah. episode into yeah, a yeah, the sure. glories of staff work. <laughs> no, let's hey, move on from that. In the hey, so I had a question when you uh, you first posed this topic. Uh, the first thing I thought of was um, now tenth group. I I, uh, I just want to make sure we get to this too. Is I believe they uh, enumerated tenth group, even though it's the first group being tenth to fool the the Russians, and there were nine others. Is that true? Is there any truth to that? There was just 10th, and that was part of the I, the Psy I mean, War back then. Yeah. Just to let them think that, well, maybe yeah. I, let Ivan think there, if there's right. there's a 10th one, oh, 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 great Stalin's ghost. Maybe there's nine <laughs> others. Hey, and then uh, this is something I always wanted to know, too, and I don't know, maybe just for my own benefit, but... Uh, was Aaron just was Aaron Bank just the rank of this man? Is that how that worked out? Why wasn't Russell Volkman the first commander of Tenth Group? Just because he was in the PI? I mean, that would make sense to me. But how did that really uh, work its way out? The colonel doesn't talk about that in his book, but I do know that he had he was pulled from the 187th Regimental Combat Team in Korea in combat as the deputy commander. So he he came from command in a large combat unit, and Volkman and Fertig commanded irregular troops. So I do believe Colonel Bank had the conventional army credentials to be placed for the purposes also of satisfying the conventional army. Um, he was a man that they no one could say, well, that guy just ran around in a loincloth with a crossbow. Um, Sounds like uh, Fertig. <laughs> no, and that's um, and you're absolutely right because um, generally speaking, I mean, um, the higher ups in the conventional side um, are leery of soft and that whole and that whole community. So, I think it gives them peace of mind just thinking that they have one of their own kind of in there that is not going to be, you know, doing a, a Colonel Kurtz controllable. Yeah. Yes, indeed. And and Colonel Bank understood his operational environment. He know how he knew how to spit shine his jump boots, and uh, how to wear his uniform properly. And he 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 was the right guy. Yeah. 
for both the conventional command, the, the airborne command that he had just recently, or the, the uh, airborne unit that he'd recently come out of, and uh, just all the tickets that he had properly, properly punched from 1943 up to 1952, or 51 actually, when he, late 51, when, it was, when he was selected to, to become the commander, to form the unit and become the commander. He actually went around the country on site surveys looking for the appropriate piece of real estate to house the troops also. Wow. Now, something else that's uh, uh, going on at the same time, for, for those who know history, is the Korean War. Yes, I mean, so we have 1950, 53, but height of the Korean War, 51, and we have this, um, I, I think, I, I know there were some SF qualified guys that made their way to Korea. Yes, indeed. But there was no formation that yes. went over there. Right. Uh, that might have been a different, I don't know, what it could have, should have, but the, uh, from my understanding, and I think this is where you're going to go, is they wanted to put the 10th group in where they thought the, they would be used the most for the next big one. Yes, indeed. Yeah. Yes, the uh, the Korean War, remember it was called a police action, yeah. uh, that polite euphemism. Well, police action is yeah. a sobriety yeah. checkpoint. This cost 100,000 men, yeah. yeah. <laughs> that's a, that's a, <laughs> a big police action. But uh, so, so much of the Department of Defense was familiar with ground combat in Europe and expected that that's where it would happen again. Yeah. And uh, that's, so that's, that was the, the, going to be the main effort. Yeah. And uh, briefly, though, the, uh, several hundred uh, Special Forces guys that had been in the newly constituted 10th Group were sent, sent to Korea yeah. to, try to, to try to do some uh, unconventional warfare, and it's it's fairly well documented that they they were not that su successful. Yeah, trying right. to do the same things that they did. Um, There's a pretty good book on that. It's called uh, White Tigers, and it uh, it kind of outlines um, some of the work they did in North Korea. But yeah, it was kind of uh, uh, not enough. Mm -hmm. uh, it was like piecemeal shotgun blast, yeah. and, and and not to discredit the planning of it, but yeah, it just didn't really make a mark. And, right. Uh, yeah. And uh, even now we wonder, well, how much of a mark would we make? Yeah, exactly. Over there? Yeah. But when uh, Colonel Bank decided that it would be that, that uh, Gruber-Riley mm. part of Fort Bragg known as Smoke Bomb Hills, it was fairly disused and dilapidated in... Uh, in 52, when he went to look at it. Those first World War buildings. And they were, they were that, though, they were that World War II construction. Okay, yeah. But, and so when Colonel Bank describes five-foot-tall weeds and uh, buildings that, that needed to have the, the pigeon crap swept out of them, and they had to doctor them up, I thought, my goodness. Wait, those were... Thirty years later, those were the same buildings I showed up yeah. uh, when I reported to Third um, SF Training Company on Smoke Bomb Hill. Yeah. Those exact same buildings. So they were in disrepair when Colonel Bank and the unit took them over in early '52, and we had a bad, wet snowstorm in early '83, and 
part of the roof collapsed on one of them. And so, some of you listening might remember. The, well, uh, well, they were still around when I went through ANOC in 1990, yep. I think. Yeah, me How too. about that? There's some, and, and this always comes up, there's, there's something to be said about the contract for temporary buildings and the quality of materials and the quality of workmanship that went into building temporary buildings in the early 1940s. Wow. How about that, huh? So they had a, um, if I understand this also, and, I, and I'm, you may get into this, so just stop me, but uh, I'm pretty sure they, he had like carte blanche to like get, uh, I know they had the Lodge Act. You had this uh, ability to get some of this talent from Europe. And uh, so there's a lot of folklore um, surrounding the formation of 10th Group, how they get these, you know, fighters from, you know, guys like, uh, uh, help me out, the guy that was a Finnish. He was, uh, yeah. yeah, you're thinking of... Uh... Anglicized name Larry Thorne. Yeah, Larry Thorne. There you go. Lauri Torni. Yeah, I didn't want to say it because I was gonna, I was gonna uh, slaughter it. But yeah. Yeah. Yes. So, so they um, they got those twenty three hundred billets from the from the disbanded Ranger companies. They selected Smoke Bomb Hill and the buildings there, and. It's in his book and well documented that on 19 June 1952, Colonel Bank uh, activated and assumed command of of 10th Group, and it was just with just a handful of handful of men. But by uh, 1953, by the spring of 1953, they they had brought it up to over 1,700 men. You mentioned the Lodge Act. The uh, there was a bill passed. Uh, I believe Senator Lodge. It was the Lodge bill, and it was something similar to what we have now: service in the U.S. military, honorable service for a period of years in the U.S. military, uh, gives you a, a U.S. citizenship. And the Eastern Europeans that were fleeing their countries that were falling under the domination of the Soviet Union were were key people. As Colonel Bank called them, lodge men. I was looking for lodge men. And that's lodge, not large. Uh, lodge men, Eastern Europeans who had fled their country as young men, who had served in the military and became U.S. citizens, if they could, if they could get a security clearance, they were prime candidates for membership in 10th group. They were, the, they were the, the foundation of individual teams. If there was one lodge man on a team, the language that he spoke as his native tongue became the target language of that team. Wow. And they, they studied his language. And he was the primary instructor for all things culturally related, area familiarization related, guiding the area study. And it's interesting also, these lodge men were mostly uh, demo, demo men from, wow. from my research. Mm. That's fascinating. I didn't know that that, that was their, the, really the, the nemesis of, uh, or excuse me, the genesis, I didn't have enough coffee today, of really the language program. So you can imagine this guy kind of, you know, uh, in the team room, you know, whatever, mm -hmm. you know, be it uh, Polish, I would imagine a lot of Polish. Yes. 
and uh, you know, uh, you can see the you know the, uh, different letters, uh, different words on the wall. So the, the team yes. room was kind of like the uh, the school room. Indeed, it was. <laughs> and they tried to get they tried to get guys to speak as much of the European Eastern European languages as as possible during the duty day. And there's always some amount of ag- aggrandizement when it comes to. I've, I've read stuff where if, if you walked by a team room, you could swear you were in a foreign country because of the foreign languages being spoken. Like, no, not always. But there, there was regular language training, and they really wanted these guys to, like we all have been. Uh, before language school was mandatory for SF, you still had the command language program, and you had to have enough of, of language ability to at least hawa. Uh, you know, let people know who you were so that they they could help you or leave you alone is one way to put it. I like, uh, and, and I'm sure most of you guys are listening, you may not, is uh, the symbol, the original symbol of 10th Group uh, has a Trojan horse on it. Mm-hmm. And uh, I want to just make sure we get that out there too because that's that definitely needs to be a part of this. Yes, they... Um, Created within their within the unit, they came up with the distinguish uni, distinguishing unit insignia. You know the the before there was the crest that we know so know now. It was a sh- a shield with a Trojan horse on it, and evo- evoking the the story of the wooden horse being left outside the gates of Troy as a gift, filled with about. 30 Greeks on the inside, and Troy brought them in, and they slipped down, and you can see the Brad Pitt movie, I think, and yeah. I'll tell you about I it. I want the details. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but it was good, because, but that didn't come about until they were transferred to Germany. Yeah, so that's the idea, is uh, back then you had an East and West Germany, yeah. you had the, you know, Berlin was also separated, mm-hmm. and you had the Checkpoint Charlie, uh, and not Easter. yet. Oh, the, not yet. Okay. No, when when uh, when 10th Group uh, in 1953, there was a workers' uprising in in Berlin, in uh, East, in Berlin, in East Germany, and before Colonel Bank got the word, the alert from the army, he recalled the men. So when there was the workers' uprising in East Germany, Colonel Bank, you know, heard about it in the news, recalled the unit, told everybody to uh, start start packing our equipment, get ready. This could this could be it. The balloon could be going up. This is why we have been created. Well, it, as it turned out, they weren't going to deploy immediately, but that was the catalyst that got the decision made to transfer the 10th group forward down to Bavaria to Bad Tolz, Germany. They did not board the ships in Wilmington until early November of 1953. Mm. But before they boarded the ships, the unit was split. Some men went went to form the 77th Special Forces which was constituted in September of 1953. The three, three of the four originals that I had the privilege of spending time with at the SFA convention, 
three of them uh, got on the ship in, in Wilmington, North Carolina with Colonel Bank and sailed across the ocean to Bremerhaven, Germany. And then trains... Long train ride. Long train ride down <laughs> to, the, to the Bad Tolts Bahnhof. Wow. And then a, a walk from the Bahnhof to the Flint Caserne. Uh, yeah. the former um, SS officer, officer school in Bad Tolts, which is a, a beautiful compound. Yeah. But the, 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 the originals told me that the advanced party, some of the officers and warrant officers that went on ahead, had let a little bit of a few cats out of the bag. Their OPSEC wasn't perfect because... Uh, as the guys got off the train at the Bonhoff and Bad Tolts, and they started walking up, kind of uphill to Flint Caserne, they walked past large apartment buildings, large civilian apartment buildings. And each of these guys remembers the German civilians leaning out their windows and pointing at the guys marching, not necessarily marching, but walking. And they didn't really have anything to distinguish them but the German civilians re leaned out and called to them, Fallschirmjäger, 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 which is paratrooper in German. So our young guy, those back then young guys, realized, how did they know that we're paratroopers already? Who told them? And they, and they found out that some of the, some of the advance party had, had talked. Hey, so, I'm, I'm still, I mean, I, you guys were both there, bad tolls. Um, I mean, how did SF swing that beautiful facility? I mean, was that just luck? I cannot imagine that happening. Uh, just, hey, why don't you go, why don't you guys head on down there and we got some nice buildings down there for you? That's a great question, Mike. I know that there was a 7th Army NCO Academy there when 10th Group got, was there. So the uh, Bavaria, as West Germany was partitioned, not only was Berlin partitioned by the Allies, but Ger West Germany itself was partitioned by the Allies. And the United States lucked out and grabbed southern Germany, Bavaria. So those, if it was a uh, SS military base just uh, seven years, seven or eight years before, um, I'm sure that we looked at it not long after the occupation forces came in and realized, man, this is a beautiful compound, big, big quadrangle. Because this was an SF officer's school, Olympic-sized pool, large athletic fields, great chow hall, everything that you know our Schultstaffel is going to need. And so certainly they weren't holding on to it for the future creation of Army Special Forces. But it was just something that we, um, we grabbed somehow. And it may have been under the control of the 7th Army. That's a good question, though. I wasn't able to be there myself. I was at uh, Panzer yes. Concern when I got there. But, yeah, the old-timers, they always talk about uh, Bad Tolts. I, I wanted to ask you this, too, mm -hmm. and I'm just kind of probably hitting those uh, folklore questions. But is there any truth to the Flash? Uh, you know, Aaron Bank, the Flash... They didn't have one pool table. Is that true? Well, there wasn't, a, there wasn't a flash. Even photographs of General Yarborough at Bragg in 62 
um, speaking to President Kennedy, yeah. he didn't have a uh, flash. Some of the guys took pieces of uh, cargo parachute camo, camo nylon from cargo parachutes and, and sewed it on. Their berets, their commercially purchased berets, uh, which were very popular uh, and worn in, in Europe, they were worn um, in, the, in the field mostly um, at Fort Bragg, and occasionally they decided to wear it if, um, for an 18th Airborne Corps function if they could get away with it. But as many people know, the, um, it was a calculated decision by General Yarborough to wear it during President Kennedy's visit to Fort Bragg um, because General, one of Kennedy's military aides had been a colleague or a classmate of General Yarborough. So uh, General Yarborough uh, applied his capabilities indirectly and used his networks mm-hmm. and, and arranged it through that aid to have President Kennedy mm-hmm. come up and talk to him and then make a comment about the beret. So talk about going over the chain of command. Yeah, it's, uh, and but SFing it, man. He he did it. He did it the SF way. Like, okay, here's the president. Uh, we love this beret. We'd love it if he loved it. Yeah. And his aide uh, planted the seed. Mr. President, make sure you talk to General Yarbrough. Compliment him on the beret. These guys would love it. And uh, and the rest is history. It's a mark of this, you know, a badge of courage and a mark of distinction in the fight for freedom. And yeah. here we have it. But I, I um, that's funny because it started off as uh, uh, something you'd wear in the field. Yes, indeed. Uh, and then uh, and they would wear probably garrison caps or something like that. Yeah, those. And, then, uh, and now we now don't even. Now it's kind of flip. That's not even wear, nobody yeah. wears a beret in the field. Oh wow! No, it's uh, it's no berets, Pat, west of Gruber Road. <laughs> yeah, it's really it's really funny. It was a it was a cool thing that they wore, you know, in the field. Yeah. But yeah, so some things have changed. But no matter. No matter how much our head sweats in the summertime when we've worn this thing, you know, we still worked our ass off to get it. So you're yeah, gonna, no you're doubt. gonna, absolutely, you're gonna wear that wool blanket on your head in the middle of the summer. Hey, yeah. so I'm not sure if you're gonna cover this also, but I've always wanted to know about um, with the formation of Tenth Group and uh, the SF doctrine, and we talked about that a little bit, but uh, and this may not even be the setting, but the, the seven phases of U.S. sponsored insurgency that we have today, did that come out of these meetings, or was that something that just kind of evolved over time? Because as a student go to the queue, I didn't really really understand UW, yeah. to be honest with you, until you know late, much, much later. So I'm just curious about that. No, it, this, this seven phases certainly wasn't around then. Uh, there, there are references to... Um, Mao's three phases. Sure. And in '83, when I went through, I remember learning Mao's three phases. But, you know, I learned it a little bit different. Now they've nuanced that too. You know, they have a, uh, I'll embarrass myself, but a strategic defense, strategic stalemate, strategic offense. But we learned like, you know, latent incipient, guerrilla war, war, war movement. movement. Yeah. So I guess they've also evolved that a little bit more too. I was, uh, I remember, I remember I was so uh, dumb and they're saying latent incipient. I said, did they say latex? Yeah, exactly. Latex. <laughs> I didn't even know what latent what? meant. I knew what latex okay. was. You just said memorize this. I had something <laughs> in my wallet made out of that. <laughs> yeah, latex. Better. Uh. Yeah, but the um, so 
Uh, right around Thanksgiving of 53, the guys got to Tolts, about, se- about 700 of them. About 700 guys stayed back um, to form the, uh, to fill the, the newly created 77th. I want to make mention of the, the training, the early SF training. There was actually a Q course class 2 53. Uh, I've seen the training schedules. They, they look a lot like our training schedules now. Yeah. There's a column for the, the time, the location, the subject, the instructor, uh, and the uniform that you'll be wearing. And so the first group of guys that were recruited by Colonel Bank, a lot of them were from World War II Special, special Forces type units. He did have OSS guys. Um, the, so the first group of guys that got there became the cadre. And then the first official, they did a lot of cross training amongst themselves, but the first formalized uh, class 253 took, took place. It started in January of 1953. Wow. He, had enough, he had enough guys by Christmas time and uh, get your get your POIs together. You'll you'll be teaching class starting in January. Yeah, right there in McCall. Uh, right there at Smoke Bomb Hill. Even. Smoke Bomb Hill. Okay, yep, yeah, right there at Smoke Bomb Hill. So the the training schedules that I've seen for Class Two Fifty Three, in which uh, Clyde Sincere, Von Saponsi, and uh, Richard Simonian were were part of were taught by OSS, vet, OSS operational groups veterans like uh, Civitella, people know that name. Um, Hemingway's son, Captain Hemingway, was in the OSS, and he was one of the instructors. And there were other, other OSS guys at higher ranks, like even lieutenant colonels, that were part of the inter-allied liaison missions, although part of OSS. You know, we had OSS lieutenant colonels on the ground in France. Um, these guys were the instructors, and the program of instruction included things like conduct of a raid. And then right after the raid was over, uh, their ver- what they called an AAR was critique of the problem. That was an, <laughs> that's what they called AARs in 1953. I'm sure the squad linear ambush was in there, too. Critique of the problem. Surreptitious <laughs> methods of entry. You know, they... Uh, SMO, that was a class that the, the originals all really enjoyed. Surreptitious, surreptitious methods of entry, lock picking. They were issued, issued lock picking kits. They had classes. Some guys kept the kits and went on to lock pick things they shouldn't have. A memo came out from groups saying, turn in your lock picking kits. Oh. And, I, and, we, and we laugh now still because we th- you're, you're thinking, nothing's it's changed. the same now. It's the guy gets a cool piece of kit that he can do other nefarious stuff with. He's going to try to hold on to it. Absolutely. So the it uh, so we got a big laugh that seventy years ago, uh, young SF guys were thinking, "Oh man, I can use this all ki- all kinds of ways. I can use this stuff." So they they they, they hung on to it. And what did they? Uh, this um, I there's so many different ideas about Robin's Age, mm-hmm. and I know they didn't call it that back then. They've called it, you know, different things, but. Uh, they, I'm sure they had some version of that. Yeah. That, because it dealt with UW. Yes, indeed. Can you yeah. just elaborate on that? Yeah, and they, they ran it in North Carolina. They ran it. Herb Brooker, um, who was a, an OSS veteran, and uh, he was one of the main guys that put on 
some of the first unconventional warfare training in the Uari National Forest in North Carolina um, in late, you know, late 52, 53. In late 52, 53, before the, the unit moved to Badtolz, they did ex exercises uh, around Fort Benning. They did exercises in uh, uh, Uari National Forest. And I've seen pictures of the guys dressed as G's and G chiefs. But because this was 52, 53, and the guys that were doing it uh, just a few years before had parachuted into France as Jedbergs, there was a lot of uh, MP40, you know, German Schmeisser submachine guns and fedora hats and trench coats being worn. And it, it looks, you know, the guys looked like they were cast in a Hollywood movie to, to be doing guerrilla warfare stuff and uh, it's pretty neat so like it a set of inglorious bastards yes truly like or like 13 rue madeline or the uh a very, a very eurocentric sort of look to it you know? yes indeed yeah. so they um they were doing it right away colonel bank said this is what we're we're created for unconventional warfare uh we're going to start doing this so they started using north carolina families and and police and it started in 52 so that's how that's how far back it goes it wasn't called robin sage then of course um but uh the, but the but, it, but it was pine land yeah the was. the young men <laughs> the young men going through robin sage this year i don't know if we have any women going through this year i'm not sure they they are they are doing something that has been going on for 70 years yeah, wow. we started doing UWFTXs the same year that we created the special forces that's a really good question i'm glad you asked it yeah and it's uh yeah the just uh because there's old photos you can you can dig up but yeah that makes sense now that they have uh the euro you know type of uh clothing mm -hmm. and uh, it's probably where you have um now you mentioned this also. I didn't want it to get lost, but seventy seventh, mm -hmm. all right, which became seventh group. Yes, uh, and then at one point you had, uh, I believe, one battalion of tenth that went forward or something like that, and the, the rest that was back morphed into something else. Or my my history is off. So in in uh, November of fifty three, all of tenth went forward. Okay, okay. So everybody that stayed back had been part of tenth group. But the deputy commander of 10th Group, uh, Lieutenant Colonel Shannon, uh, nicknamed Black Jack Shannon, he, he was picked to be the group commander for 77th. So in, in, uh, if you ever, if, ever can get a hold of the very rare Special Forces Trivial, per, Trivial Pursuit Special Forces edition, <clears throat> doesn't exist i made that up yeah it's worth a google that, if you yeah. can find who yeah. okay who was the who was the first commander of 10th group aaron bank who was the first commander of 77th group lieutenant colonel blackjack shannon so formerly the deputy commander of 10th group and later on i believe it was uh both simons Somewhere along around White Star, I think he finally. But this is a little further afield. 
Yeah, I'll have to get back to you. Yeah, sorry. But uh, but yeah, at that time you had you had two groups. Yep. Really started here in Bragg. Yep. And at you know at some point we had all the groups here until they moved out. But yeah, so it's really the, neat. It's really neat. Place. It's really neat to know that Smoke Bomb Hill, Fort Bragg. Yeah. It is where, it's where you know, and you may have seen pictures of uh, Gen- General retired Wild Bill Donovan yep. visiting Tenth Group when Aaron Bank was the commander. Literally, Aaron Bank's old commander came by to see you know, what the new parachutes look like, what the uniforms look like, what the, what the gear looked like, and that was right. Some of us have been in those same buildings. You know, some of us uh, back in the old days ate in those company chow halls that you know, the originals did KP duty in and maybe Colonel Bank went by and said, you need to get some whole wheat bread in here, <laughs> not just white bread. Yeah, you mentioned uh, Donovan also. I think he said something. I don't, I don't want to misquote him, but I think he said, uh, you're, you're carrying on our legacy or something like that Yeah. when, when uh, he visited uh, because he saw that, that new formation uh, and, the, and how 10th uh, Group was really uh, at least part uh, you know, carrying on the the Jedbergs and the OG mission. Yes. And for of course, uh, you know the the OGs were very similar to a modern aid attachment. Yes, uh, indeed. Yeah. So. And uh, I talk I talked to retired special forces guys even this week who are who are unfamiliar with what the operational groups who the operational groups were, and uh, they they. By Colonel Banks' admission, as well as uh, General Yarborough's mm-hmm. admission, they truly were the the model for the early special forces detachments. And they weren't called ODAs; they were called uh, uh, a twelve to fifteen man operational detachment was called an operational detachment FA Foxtrot Alpha. Mm-hmm. And none of the originals could remember what the Foxtrot Alpha stood for but a a higher echelon was a foxtrot bravo and then there was a foxtrot charlie uh, uh, operational detachment c um, and they were constituted to have interaction with a, a higher level of resistance leader a higher level of area command but the operational groups uh, selected in world war ii with because of their regional orientation, often for immigrants or first-generation immigrants from the target country they were going to be sent to, fluent linguists, and uh, operating mostly, of course, in Europe, 15 to 30 men. And there's one book, one good book out there written called uh, Donovan's Donovan's Devils, I think. Mm. I was going to ask you about that because um, uh, not only when he said you're carrying on our legacy, but you have... Tenth uh, Group going to the area where you know OSS was in operation. Yes, indeed. With yeah. the basic foundational group of an OG, with the language capability and all those things. But uh, yeah, I wanted to ask you about that. Are there any other books we mentioned? Uh, that book you just mentioned, and then uh, White Tigers. But uh, we do want to mention again Aaron Banks from OSS to Green Berets. Yep. This would have a lot of this into in it. It does. Yeah. So from OSS to Green Berets by Colonel Aaron Bank. Yeah. 
and it's still it's still in print out there. Got my copy right there. Yep. It's kind of tattered. And then there are some uh, written in the 1980s some some good history books about the uh, particularly uh, published ar around 1982. So there were a couple of books published on the occasion of the 30th anniversary of the Army Special Forces. Mm. So a Googling uh, Army Special Forces history book, 1952 to 1982, some of them will pop up. Uh, it's one of, the, one of those books is a, does a really good description of how in um, 1960, the Army decided to uh, reactivate the legacy of the first Special Service Force and then uh, attach administratively uh, lineage and honors from the first special service force to the newly formed 10th group right. 77th and then the other other groups that came after it that's another thing that's important too is because uh, the army's official you know because we're an army unit our mm -hmm. lineage comes from the devil's brigade the first special service force i know how you feel about that and me too but but legacy wise as donovan said we're the uh, we're you know from the embryonic uh Fluid, yep. all of that from uh, the OSS. So we're we're birthed out of that. Yeah, I, uh, and along with the CIA. Yeah, you may have heard me say, as I as I think think in terms of metaphors and analogies, um, our you know our our DNA, you know our 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 bloodline and our 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 literally our our genetic heritage yeah. comes from special forces comes from. The OSS with a with a strong stronger chromosomes coming from the operational groups, but the adoption papers cut cut in 1960 say that our 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 parents are the different companies within different regiments of the first special service force. Yeah, and that's that's one way to look Fascinating. at it. Fascinating. It all began with tenth uh, group. Began yes, with uh, and. Um, and we, you know, we want to give credit where credit is due. Uh, Aaron Banks' push to make a tenth group. Yes, so indeed. I mean, you yeah. could argue there wouldn't have been some of these fighting groups, these fighting formations. There wouldn't have been these men who had the idea and the guts and you know the lobbying yes. to make this happen. You know, and he was only the group commander for two years, fifty-two to fifty-four. He got him. He did all the hard work before he was the group commander in 51, the Pentagon. They pulled him out of combat tour in Korea, sent him to the Pentagon, gave him two years as the group commander to do all the hard stuff. But he got us all the way to Germany, got everybody trained up. And in 54, it was time for him to be transferred to the G3 in the 7th Army over there he was already there and that's when Colonel Ekman Colonel Ekman became the group commander so the second commander of 10th group was Colonel Ekman wow. Ekman mm -hmm. and this may be I mean obviously we'd want to save this for a future podcast but you had the honor of meeting um, the family and I believe I don't know were you able to meet Aaron Banks yes I was very very privileged to know him in uh, in later years and if you were an sf guy in the you know 80s or 90s you 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 could have met aaron bank whether at a sfa convention i believe <coughs> excuse me um a lot, lot of guys 
you know, six, 60 and up have, have met him. He lived in Southern California, so did I at the time. I was a 19th group captain and volunteered to serve permanently as the family liaison for SF and to be, when the day came, Catherine Banks' casualty assistance officer. So as Con Plan Bank rotated between 1st group at Fort Lewis and 10th group at Fort Carson every six months, um, they had uh, Captain Utterback to always be the person being in regular contact with the bank family. So I, was, I have spent many, many times visiting with them both, uh, holiday dinners at their assisted living facility, and during that sad time when it finally came, uh, was Catherine's CAO and her escort during the funeral and uh, helped um, pick out the awards and decorations to be pinned on. I pinned them on Colonel Banks' blazer, selected his regimental tie. Um, this is a point of you know, historic interest that Colonel Bank was buried wearing the Special Forces regimental tie, Special Forces Association blazer with his ribbon rack, his uh, jump wings with combat stars, and his uh, World War II uh, combat infantry badge, or retroactively awarded CIB, and buried holding his Green Beret, clutched in his hands um, in a dignified way over his stomach. Wow. Yeah. What an honor that you had, uh, yeah. you had a chance to, uh, to, to serve yeah, the, the father of Special Forces and the family. Truly an honor. Be a part of that history. Let me, let, me, let me ask you a question. Um, when, when 10th Group was organized and these various uh, personalities uh, from the OSS community and, and what have you are coming in and checking on and helping and assisting and seeing how everything's going, were there any members of the 1st Special Service Force that, no. that were involved in that? In my in my research, there were well, correction, there. In, there were members. It, it is said of World War II airborne units, First Special Service Force, that served uh, in in the unit, but they were not people that uh, Colonel Bank rec recruited uh, directly himself. You know he. He handpicked some of the officers that he served with in the OSS. Yeah, I think that, that says a lot, too, uh, just that as well. Yeah. yeah, his preference was for combat paratroopers and um, OSS members to help him stand up the, uh, the group headquarters. Yeah, so the D I mean, obviously affected the DNA of 10th Group and, I think, uh, getting us forward, uh, getting us started uh, forward. But... Uh, I don't know. I mean, I'm. I, I had just one real quick question. Um, is special forces today? Um, are we are we doing the things that we need to be doing for tomorrow's threats? Are, are we are we focused? I mean, I know this is completely subjective, but um, do we feel like we're the, the the organization is is training where they need to be training, spending the time? Where they need to be spending the time is is UW the the big thing that really needs to be uh, taking up most of our attention now, or is it something else going on? Or what do you think? My per personal assessment is UW is is the right focus. There are JSETs going on in innumerable European countries right now. 
Uh, foreign internal defense and security force assistance is ongoing. But the day may come when UW uh, is given back to us. Uh, one of the complaints of the originals that I spent time with, uh, which uh, many of us that are older can, can relate to, is there was, there was a day when technology only allowed you to make communications once a day That's right. with your higher headquarters. And that you may be the only team in, a, in country X because uh, your, your operational detachment FA is in the country. And uh, you're being C2'd by you know, the unit back in Tolts or even all the way back in the States. So the, um, the originals lament the amount of technology and the requirements to report and have uh, constant tracking of what the special forces operators are doing. So they, they feel that there is, to put it uh, colloquially, too much adult supervision now from higher headquarters. When, when it was created back in the day to, and I, was, I also served as an 18 Echo, <clears throat> I, I had 24 hours to get my initial entry report sent, my Angus report. Can you imagine that now? You know, a higher headquarters comfortable that a team has gone dark on comms for 20, 23 and a half hours? Hell no. Yeah. So, That's so true. So uh, technology has, has created uh, a requirement for teams to do... Uh, keep almost continual, constant communication today, isn't it? Well, you know, some, some units, uh, there's, every man wears a transponder. You know, we track individuals even in, mm -hmm. s in some, some parts of our armed forces. That's right. Yeah. But yeah, fascinating uh, just to kind of go back into history to know that and to, uh, we really, they say if you don't know the history, you're not going to know, you know, where, where we're going in the future. We don't have a foundation. And uh, so, yeah, we know guys out there that are special forces or you're getting, you want to get into that. Uh, you really want to go back and to know our history, uh, and to know you know where we came from, and uh, so we've we've uh, introduced some books there, uh, some titles, and uh, hopefully you'll uh, you'll you go and get those, uh, know our history, and then uh, you know know where we come from, and also you know history repeats itself, uh, and you know the only thing we don't learn from history, as uh, George Santiana said, is we don't learn from history, and so, you know. So we, uh, but yeah, it was fascinating, uh, Mitch, for taking us down that uh, uh, back to the formation of Tenth Group, Thank and you. to know that that was fascinating. And uh, appreciate it. Yeah, appreciate you, sir. Thank you, guys. Well, we hope you enjoyed today's episode of the Pinelander Podcast, and if you enjoy our content, uh, we hope you'll check out our sponsors. Blacksmith Publishing has been serving the warrior class since 2013. We have books written by warriors for warriors. So uh, check us out at blacksmithpublishing.com. And if you're looking for some cool uh, Pinelander apparel, head on over to the general store at pinelander1776.com. Uh, we've got a great selection of shirts, hats, jackets, stickers, and everything else you can think of. Uh, thank you for those people that also that uh, are supporting the uh, American Agogi Project, uh, helping to create the next generation of warriors. And until our next meeting, remember to keep your head on a swivel, stay mentally and tactically smart, physically and spiritually strong, and socially astute. To each other, we pledge our lives, our fortunes, and our sacred honor.
God bless Pineland.